Hello and welcome to PMQ Learning Outcome 10. In this session, we'll be looking at risk and issue management. In particular, we'll be explaining each stage in the risk management process. We'll be looking at proactive and re reactive responses to risk. And we'll also be explaining the benefits of risk management. So what is a risk? A risk is the potential of a situation or event to impact on the achievement of specific objectives. The benefit of undertaking risk management is that it allows us to understand those risk events and to proactively manage them, planning responses that will reduce or eliminate negative risks and maximise opportunities. A useful way of being able to describe a risk event is by using risk meta-language. This structure enables us to come up with a single statement made up of three clauses. One that outlines the cause or the pre-existing conditions. Then we talk about the risk event itself. And lastly, the impact of that risk. So let's look at an example of a threat. Due to existing public opposition to the project, a public inquiry may be held, leading to extensive delays and additional costs. The public inquiry may be being held is the risk event here, but we could clearly see the cause that let, might lead to that and the impact of it should it occur. But as we've stated, risks aren't just negative, they can be positive risks that we actually want to maximise. Again, using risk meta-language, we can describe a risk in the following way. Due to public support for the project, additional funding may be available leading to a higher quality solution. Again, we can clearly see the risk event as the additional funding may be available, but we can also clearly delineate the cause that may lead to that risk and also the impact should it occur. Let's now take a moment to look at the risk management process. The risk management process involves a number of stages from initiating the risk process to identifying the risks themselves assessing risks, planning appropriate responses, and then implementing risks. Importantly, the risk management process is dynamic. It's not something that just happens at the beginning of the project. It needs to happen at the beginning and then ongoing throughout so that we can continually assess risks that may indeed change over the life, life of the project itself. Let's take a moment now to consider each of these in more detail. The first stage in the risk management process is initiation. This is where we seek to understand first the project itself, gaining clarity on its success criteria, its outcome and benefits that are expected. By understanding this, we can then seek to understand the potential risks that may be involved. The next step is to actually create the risk management plan. The risk management plan sets out the reporting, the roles and responsibilities and the metrics that are going to be used and any standards that need to be followed. It's important to understand here that the risk management plan doesn't include any risk events themselves or responses to them. They will be contained in the risk register. But the plan sets out the process by which we're going to complete risk management. The next step then is to actually identify the risks themselves. And there are a number of techniques that can be used to achieve this. They may include a SWOT analysis, 
or they may include brainstorming or questionnaires. We may look back to lessons learned from other projects and we may use interviews with key stakeholders. By using a variety of these methods, we can ensure we have a comprehensive list of the risks that may be involved in our project. Once we've identified these risks, we can then assess them. We can understand for each risk what the probability is of them occurring and also what the impact is in terms of time or cost should they occur. And by multiplying these two things, we can come up with a severity factor overall for each individual risk. In this stage, we'll also consider when in the project life cycle we think the risk may occur. And this is known as the risk window. By looking at this for each of our risks, we can then calculate the overall risk for the project itself and get an understanding of whether the project is likely to exceed the organisation's risk threshold. And this can then be visually represented in a risk matrix. A risk matrix enables senior managers at a glance to see the level of risk that they may be taking on for a project. It effectively plots the probability and impact of each risk in a matrix, either just using a simple red, green, amber score or by using a numeric. And it also can be tailored so that each impact can be specific to whether it's a time or a cost delay. It also enables us to look at threats as well as opportunities and provides a good visual re representation at a glance of the overall level of risk that we're likely to encounter. For further details on this, please do refer to your PMQ book. Once we've assessed the risks, we can then start to plan responses. And those responses are referred to as either proactive responses or reactive responses. And they'll differ slightly depending on whether they're threats that are negative risks or opportunities, positive risks. Let's now consider some of the proactive approaches we could take to managing risk. We'll start by considering threats. We might decide to avoid the risk. In this instance, we would change the objectives of our project so that the risk simply couldn't occur. We could decide to transfer the risk. For example, if we thought the cost of borrowing was going to increase and might threaten the viability of our project, we could choose to transfer this risk perhaps to an outside foreign exchange hedge where they would take on this risk should it occur. And we do this through insurance. We could decide to absorb the impact of a risk by pooling risks across multiple internal projects. The most common strategy would be to reduce the impact or probability of the risk. And we do this by setting in place different actions that will minimise the risk should it occur. And lastly, we could decide to accept the risk. We might deem the risk to be relatively low and therefore decide to take no action. However, we might want to factor that into any contingency funds that we put in place, because of course the risk could change over time. Let's now consider responses we could take to opportunities. We could decide to share the opportunity. This response would involve the client and supplier perhaps working together in an incentivized arrangement 
so that they collaborate to allow the opportunity to occur. We might decide to enhance the probability or impact by taking specific actions. For example, if we discovered that a product that we were planning to introduce was likely to have a higher demand than originally expected, we might choose to invest more money in it so that we can maximise this opportunity. We might decide to reject the opportunity. For example, it may be that through incentivising suppliers, we might be able to get early delivery of a particular product or machine. However, it may be that we don't have the support organisation in place yet to deal with that. And in this instance, we might decide to reject the opportunity. Lastly, we might consider exploiting the opportunity. For example, if I was a supplier working under a fixed term project and I identified that I might have ways that I could actually improve efficiency and save costs, this would exploit the opportunity and maximise my profits. Lastly, there are reactive approaches that can be taken to risk. This is essentially where we put in place a contingency plan, which is the um, putting by of additional time or money to deal with the risk should they happen. Once we've planned our different responses to risk, we then need to consider any residual risks that may, or may still remain. And that will include any risks that we've chosen to accept. We'll also need to consider any risks that may have arisen as a result of mitigation. And these are called secondary risks. An example of this might be, let's say in construction, that previous experience has told me that a particular sand supplier is unreliable and may not deliver on time. I may as mitigation have decided to use a different sand supplier, but this may result in differences in the sand qualities I previously used, and therefore this would be deemed a secondary risk. Once you've assessed this risk, you then need to update the risk register, making sure that you've put in any planned responses that you've identified. You then need to make sure that risks are allocated to risk owners accountable for monitoring those risks and actioning any requirements to minimise the risks that have been identified. The project manager will still retain overall accountability for continuously monitoring risks and ensuring that people are taking the actions required and that no new actions are required as a result of new risks appearing. Once risk responses have been planned, they then need to be implemented. Each response will need to be appropriately resourced and allocated to an appropriate risk owner, who will then be accountable for expediting any actions required. It's important then that this is also reported on regularly so that if any changes occur, these can also be actioned. The project manager will then continue to monitor the effectiveness of the responses in line with the risk management plan, making sure that these are reported on regularly and following up if any actions haven't been expedited. Finally is the close stage. Once the window of opportunity for a particular risk has passed, the risk status needs to be amended to closed. Closed risks then provide a rich source of information to future projects as part of lessons learned.
Let's now consider some of the benefits of risk management that can be considered in terms of hard risks and soft risks. One of the things that risk management leads to is better informed and more reliable plans, schedules and budgets. As we all know, at the beginning of a project, most of our plans are based on estimates and are really accurate. By introducing a clear system of risk management and planning mitigation, mitigating actions for risks that may arise, we are able to have much more confidence in the plans that we have and therefore lead to a higher chances of success of achieving those objectives. Risk management also enables us to choose the most suitable type of contract. For example, a fixed term contract typically places most of the risk on the supplier, whereas a cost plus type of arrangement places the risk more on the customer. By having open discussions between suppliers and customers early on in the process and establishing the overall level of risk, we can actually lead to choosing the right kind of contract that's appropriate for all parties. And this can avoid litigation. Risk management effectively done will also lead to a much better assessment of contingencies. It avoids us putting in blanket contingencies. Instead, by using a clear understanding of probability and impact so that we can understand the overall severity of a potential risk, we're able to allocate funds that are appropriate. This in turn gives greater confidence to senior stakeholders and is more likely to secure the funding that we require. Risk management will also discourage the acceptance of financially unsound projects. We don't want projects to go ahead consuming valuable resources if they're actually not viable. And therefore, risk management allows us to identify any, any such projects as early on in the process as possible. Let's now consider some of the soft benefits. One of the benefits that comes from undertaking risk management is an improved corporate experience and increased communication. This is often seen as one of the best outcomes from undertaking risk management. It provides a framework in which risk can be talked about openly and avoids a culture of blame and leads to a much better understanding of the viability of a project and its likely chances of success. It also facilitates much more open and honest dialogue between customers and suppliers. By providing this framework of talk, uh, for risk, we're able to talk about the threats and the opportunities and build deeper relationships that are built on trust. Lastly, it facilitates a greater risk, greater risk taking and increased benefits. Without formal management of risk, we're effectively taking a gamble with a project. It's uncontrolled risk that we haven't really understood. But once we have a clear framework in place, we have a much better understanding of the risks, the responses we can take, and therefore we can minimise the amount of contingency and maximise the, the, the return. In part two of Learning Outcome 10, we're going to be looking at issue management. So what is an issue? An issue is something that has or will occur. Unlike risk management, it doesn't deal with uncertainty, but certainty. 
In project management terms, an issue occurs when the tolerances of delegated work have been exceeded or will be exceeded. Issues differ to problems in that problems arise day to day within the project and can be handled within the particular team in which they arise. They don't require escalation to a high level of authority for resolution, whereas issues do. And the issue management process consists of several fundamental steps. Firstly, there's a requirement to log the issue and do rapid assessment of the issue, particularly if the issue could get worse over time. For example, if you experience a spillage, an oil spillage, then any failure to res respond quickly could result in the issue becoming worse, which could increase the cost to the organisation or the project. Once the issue has been effectively logged, it then needs to be escalated to the right level of authority. This will be escalation to the sponsor or, if required, the overall executive governing board. The governing board or sponsor will then help to identify the actions that need to be taken to resolve the issue. And once this has been done, these actions need to be assigned to an issue owner. If it involves changes to the current baseline, this also needs to be actioned through change control following project processes. It's also important to update the risk register if the issue is as a result of an actual risk that had been identified occurring. And then the last step involves the constant review and monitoring and reporting on the issue to ensure that any actions have been expedited. If you want to understand in more detail any of the steps in this process, please do refer to the PMQ book. So what are some of the barriers to issue management? It may be that there's a lack of time to process issues. This may be due to lack of resource or simply such a focus going on in the project that these aren't managed through a well-managed process. It could be that issues are held onto for too long. This can sometimes occur where thresholds of responsibility for resolving issues are held too highly in the organisation and therefore access to senior managers is not as available as it should be and this can slow down the process. It could be that there's a kind of corporate blindness to underlying issues. For example, we may not recognise that we have the certain skills that we require and this leads to issues in terms of completing of activities. Or there may be a culture of blame or bravado existing within the organisation, which either means we think we can solve problems above our delegated authorities, or that people are afraid to raise issues for fear of rep retribution. So what are some of the things that we can do to alleviate these problems? Firstly, having a clearly articulated issue management process that is promoted and understood by all team members will greatly help to effective issue management. Secondly, we might want to engage the Programme Management Office. They can often be used to help facilitate understanding of the process, to show people how to use templates and to make sure as people join the project, they understand the process. And lastly, by having clear and agreed delegated tolerances for each role in the team. But it's important to ensure that these tolerances are set at sensible levels too small and it may end up like micromanagement and people won't want to follow it, too large and it may become ineffective.